I'm just going to dive right in. I'm going to dive right in. Uh, I know we're a little a little thin this morning. I know we have a lot of people sick, a lot of people out of town. But I hope, I trust, you guys came ready um, to seek the Lord with me in his word. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll get one to you. That's our gift to you. So... Merry Christmas in uh, November. Um, let's read verses 1 through 6, and then uh, I'll pray and, and dive in. I, I, I think I might have an introduction that's longer than some pastor's sermons this morning. So, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, let's, let's read. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together. And gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Would you pray with me? God, we resume our position as we do every Sunday. on our knees, beneath your word. Asking you to minister, asking you to speak. God, when we think of the heavens, when we think of the work of your hands, when we think of the infinite universe, the stars, the galaxies. What is man that you would think of us? Who in the world are we, Lord? That you would come down from heaven, as it were, and and speak. Serve even your people. God, you are amazing. The word of God came down and the word of God took on the form of a servant. God, we're just so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful for the mission that you sent him on. Seek and save us. And now, God, as we look at this text this morning, I'm praying you would use it to open our eyes to the mission you have now put us on. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, the title, uh, or the banner, so to speak, um, that I'm going to hang over what I'm thinking will probably be mm, th- three messages on this text. Uh, the, the banner that I'd hang over 
these three messages would be this. Every saint sent. Every saint sent. Subtitle, the making of a missionary. The making of a missionary. I am operating here on the basis of an assumption um, that I made and only you know, minimally defended a few weeks ago when we looked at the demoniac and how Jesus, when he's all said and done with this guy, uh, ends up uh, sending him back home, return and declare. And we talked about how uh, all Christians, essentially, whether they're going or staying, are going as missionaries. That every Christian is put on Mission by God that every Christian is, in the broadest sense of the term, a missionary. Now, just to rehash this, I, I, I say that every Christian in the broadest sense of the term is a missionary because I'm aware that there are narrower ways to define the idea of missionary. Very valid, uh, very important technical ways of defining it where uh, you, some understand it as that's, it's when you kind of cross over seas and go to a foreign land or an unreached, unreached people and you try to go with the gospel there. These things are radically, profoundly important, uh, immeasurably necessary when it comes to the advance of the gospel in the world and the call of Christ the King on his church to go unto all the nations. So I'm not, in calling all of us missionaries, trying to downplay or devalue this narrower sense of the term. What I'm actually trying to do is say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's look at what those guys are doing, those guys that are saying, here we go. Here we go. We're leaving it all and following him. Let's look at what those guys are doing and bring some of that back to the homeland. As it were. Let's take some of that lay it all down for Jesus kind of lifestyle. Like here's my yes. It's on the table wherever you want me to go. Whatever you want me to say. Whoever you want me to reach. I'll give it all up. That sort of yes on the table kind of lifestyle. Let's bring that back to the homeland. And live that way here. Um, it's my understanding that this kind of lifestyle, this missionary lifestyle, ought not to be the exception, but rather the norm. That the missionary lifestyle is the normal Christian life. Um, In fact, since preaching on this subject briefly a few weeks ago, um, I actually came across a quote by uh, British preacher Charles Spurgeon. And uh, it's searching, it's a bit brutal, but I loved it. And I want to read it to you here, just one line from it now, and we'll actually close with the full context later. He says this, Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. <laughs> There's just two categories in Spurgeon's mind when he's 
thinking of Christians or so-called Christians. Either they're the real deal and they're missionaries or they're imposters. Either they're going hard for the gospel in the everyday of their life, wanting to spread, wanting to publish in their neighborhoods and wherever God would send them uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or they have reason to suspect perhaps they haven't even encountered the living God yet at all. Because the essence of it is this, those who have truly seen, those who truly have had their eyes open, their hearts open to a God who would send his son down to a rebellious humanity and bring him up to the cross, crush him there for their sins so that though we deserve hell, we are given everlasting life in paradise with him. Those that really see that, that get that, that has an explosive effect. You don't just kind of... I don't know, lightly simmer in that, like turn the burner on warm and we just kind of sit, it's like a nice little jacuzzi for us. No, 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 that has an explosive effect where you want to get out, you want to share, there is a propulsion. The gospel moves those who have truly been touched by it. That's the point. To be Christian is to be sent out on mission, whether you cross oceans to reach the nations or you cross the street to reach your neighbors. You are Christ's missionary, a sent one of God. In other words, every saint sent. Now, I said that my introduction was going to be longer than um, some pastor's sermons. I don't want to let you down. So here we go. I want to, if you'll you'll stay with me for a, a moment, I... I couldn't figure out where to put this reflection, so I just threw it in the intro, all right? (laughs) But I wanted to linger here on this uh, a little bit longer. I want to sharpen this point by asking a question. Why do you, Christian, have the Spirit of God? It's uh, an important question to ask. We who have the Spirit of God would do well to look back in the Scripture and see, wait a minute, why did Jesus, did God, send the Spirit in the first place? And honestly, there are a lot of different answers to this question, right? As, as I was look, thinking about this, I was like, man, the, the Spirit is seriously like the Swiss army knife in God's belt. It's like, man, He does everything for us. It's incredible. Uh, things just started coming to my mind immediately, and I had to stop myself because you could just keep going. But the Spirit convicts the world of sin, right? The Spirit uh, opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ. The Spirit regenerates our hearts and, and awakens faith. The Spirit is called the Comforter, right? He comforts us in our affliction or in our earthly sojourn on the way to heaven. The Spirit... Uh, Jesus would say to his disciples, listen, the Spirit will teach you what to say in the day when you don't know what to say and everyone's angry and you're scared. He'll give you words. Uh, Jesus says that the Spirit will bring to your remembrance uh, my words. In other words, he's going to bring Scripture to mind for you in times when you need it most. 
we read that the Spirit also grieves when we are in sin. I mean, that is an incredible thing to think about. The grace of God that the Spirit grieves. The Spirit grieves when you say, "Ah, yeah, I know that that's where God wants me to go, but that looks so much better. He's crying inside of you so that your heart starts to break. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. Over your own sin. I've told you before, but there are times where I have, you know, thought, man, uh, that doesn't look so good. I'd rather go over here, things like lust or whatever. And even as I was moving towards that, my whole body would start to like shake with almost dread or just the spirit inside me grieving. What a grace. He fills our lives with fruit. Right? Fruits of the Spirit, things like joy, peace, patience, kindness, love. Who doesn't enjoy the fruits of the Spirit and want more of that? He also gives us the gifts of the Spirit, right? The charismata, as we read them in, in, in Paul's letters largely, where we read that, you know, man, we are given these, these aspects of Christ's power and, and ministry so that we can go and more effectively serve uh, others to uh, God's honor and for their good. And then we read finally, and this is perhaps the capstone of it all, that he seals us into the day of redemption. That you are sitting in this room secure. Sealed unto the day of redemption because of the Holy Spirit in your life. God sent him, Jesus sent him for all of these reasons and more. But there's one reason that um, stands out perhaps even above the others. One reason that seems to kind of run underneath all of these. Because it's what Jesus highlights in particular when he's leaving them. This is, well, essentially, and I'll show you this from the text, but... The Spirit has been sent to equip us for the mission of God. So that the promise of God back with Abraham or even further back with Genesis 3.15 to Adam. That through this seed or through God's work the nations would be blessed. Like God makes good on that promise to bless every family in Christ through the Spirit. By sending the Spirit to a people who then go on that mission and bring that gospel to the nations. The Spirit is fundamentally a missionary Spirit. You get that? Sent to us because Jesus is sending us to them, to the world. John 20, 21-22 is a perfect example. After Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples and he says this, <clears throat> Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's huge. We'll, we'll linger more on that later. But note this, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, here's your mission. <laughs> As the Father sent me, now I send you to go seek, save the lost, bring the gospel of the kingdom to, uh, to bring the gospel of the kingdom to them. But there's one thing in particular you're going to need desperately in your going, and that is, namely, the Spirit. So He breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. He sends the Spirit to us because He's sending us to the world. You could go to Pentecost where we spend a lot of our time, it seems. Acts 1.8, where this again is made plain. Jesus um, is about to ascend and he's speaking to his disciples about their mission. And this is what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did you catch it? Why the spirit? What's the point of the Spirit? Why is He sending the Spirit to His people? It's not just so that we feel good and have a nice little experience. It's so that we go with power and be His witnesses. Did you catch that? He would even say, right, don't you go until the Spirit comes. But once the Spirit comes, you won't be able to stop yourself from going. I think that's why a lot of times the Spirit is talked about like water. Just like this current Right? Like he's going to pour it out and, and, and it's coming from the altar. It's coming from the temple and it's going to flow and, and, and flood the earth. Or it's rising up from within us like, like, like streams of, of living water, right? You just can't stop this movement. It's going. It's a missionary spirit that we have. He sends the spirit to us because he is sending us to them, whoever, wherever they are. Did you catch that? Some of them sent to the homeland, Jerusalem. Maybe never leave there. Maybe stay there. They're missionaries there. But from there, they will go to Samaria, Judea, the ends of the earth. They're just sent by Jesus. That's the point of the Spirit. Equip you for the mission, wherever you are. Reach those around you for the gospel. One last thing to note, this um, missionary spirit is not given. Though in the context of John 20, the context of Acts 1-8, uh, you might think, oh, this spirit is just given to the apostles, right? This is, he's talking to the apostles. Uh, this must just be for the apostles. But that's not the case at all. Pentecost comes. The spirit fills everyone. Women, the children, it would seem, the, the man, and one of Peter's first words when he's filled with the Spirit, he finally, timid, scared, denying Peter, filled with the Spirit, can't stop the going. Now, the missionary movement now stands up with boldness and proclaims, he quotes from Joel 2, 28 to 29. He says this to the crowd around in the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on what all flesh 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. In other words, it's coming for everybody. From the quote-unquote greatest among us to the quote-unquote least. You might sit in this room and feel like there's no way God wants you on his team in the mission. But if he has put his spirit, his missionary spirit in you, then you are his missionary. And he wants to send you. He is sending you out. And he has a, a, a mission for you. Every saint sent. Now, let's bring the introduction to a close. It's my contention that our text here actually lays out a lot of what's involved in the making of a missionary. I think this text actually uh, identifies for us a lot of what's involved in the making of a missionary. Uh, this morning, we're going to be limiting our attention just to the basically first one and a half verses. Okay, I said there'll be three messages on this. We're going to be looking at the preparatives, if you will, uh, of a missionary, what some of the preparation stuff that goes on. That's this morning. And we're going to look at the objectives. That's next week. And then finally, the directives of a missionary. But this morning, it's preparatives. Preparatives. And it's verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. Uh, there are certain things that that help prepare or that that need to happen when Jesus is preparing people for the mission field to be missionaries. And uh, when we look closely at the text, we notice that there are three things brought out. First, missionaries are called. Second, missionaries are given. And then third, just to keep riffing on this introductory idea, missionaries are sent. They're sent. Let's uh, take those one by one. But before I, I dive in, I do need to say one last thing. Maybe some of you aren't troubled by this and, and wanting to keep me honest here. But I, I, I want you to learn to keep me honest. So open up your Bibles and, and make sure you're following along. Because if you read this text, if you're reading this text with me, and, and you see what I'm doing here, talking about every saint sent, and talking about this text with regard to the church in general, you ought to be getting a little bit concerned, because when we read this text, it's only seeming to be talking about the apostles. He called the twelve, Nick, the twelve, the twelve, the twelve, and did this. What are you doing saying that this relates to everyone? Where am I making, why am I making that kind of interpretive move? You should be keeping me honest here. Now, um, obviously there is a lot that I can do to defend uh, this move here, but I think probably the simplest thing I can do is just point out that even in the immediate context of Luke itself, um, it essentially demands that we broaden the scope of this mission out to include all of Christ's disciples. And here's why. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives essentially the same 
almost identical type language commands, the same kind of mission where he, he, he calls these, these guys to himself. He gives them this sort of power to go out and preach and heal, and, and he sends them out. Only now it's not the 12. Only. It's 72 of his disciples, or maybe 70. There's some dispute on that. But the, the implication is plain. What we see happening with these 12 here at the beginning of Luke 9, when correlated with what we see happening uh, at the beginning of Luke 10, it means that what Jesus is doing here with these 12, uh, perhaps in a, and I think in a preeminent sort of way, in a pace setting, leading the way sort of way, he also desires to do with every single one of his disciples, namely, send them out. Namely, call them, <laughs> equip them, give them power and authority, and send them out. Make them missionaries. In other words, he intends to do this Luke 9, 1 through 6 sort of thing with you and with me. So, first... When it comes to preparing uh, missionaries here, uh, first thing we see is that uh, they must be called, called. And what I mean by that really is called to Jesus, into communion with him, called to be his disciples. So let me bring something out. As we turn from chapter eight to chapter nine, um, two very, very important things come into view for the very first time. And these two things that will emerge are profoundly related. On the one hand, as we keep moving through uh, chapter 9, here's what we're going to see. This is going to be the very first time that Jesus essentially sits his disciples down and says, guys, the Christ... The son of man, me, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be uh, given over to the, to, the, to the hands of men. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. That's verses uh, 21 and 22. First time. This is when Peter looks at him and goes, no way, never. Couldn't be. So I've never heard anything like this before. But in other words, first thing we realize is that Jesus is not going to be around for much longer. By the end of the chapter, we're going to read that he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And the whole rest of Luke's gospel is oriented uh, towards the cross, is, is played out under the shadow of the cross. Jesus, at least in his earthly ministry, will not be around much longer. First thing that comes to the surface. Now, second thing I want to bring out, second thing that we see for the very first time in Luke 9. Jesus' disciples... Are, are, are actually given their first taste of ministry. Jesus' disciples are now told, hey man, you get in the game. Hey, you guys go, and the stuff you've been seeing me do, carry that forward. Let's, let's start to see you guys raised 
up. I mean, this is it's in Luke nine now where we're going to see. You remember the feeding of the five thousand when you're like, man, uh, somebody's got to feed these guys. And Jesus turns to him and says, what? Well, you feed them. You feed them. Why does he say that? He's raising them up. He's raising them up. But obviously that's what we see here in the first two verses of our text. Jesus called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. What has Jesus been doing up to this point? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing That sums up his whole ministry. And now he says to his disciples, to these apostles in particular, you guys, what you've been seeing me do now is your turn. Let's go. It's um, incredible. You can see how the two are related, I assume, right? That Jesus is going to die, not be around much longer And that Jesus is raising up his apostles to carry on his mission. That what he began in the flesh, you could say, while he was here, he's going to continue in his church by the Spirit. That's why the church is called by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ. We get so used to that language, you don't even think about what it means. What is your body? But the physical, if you are a soul and a body, your body uh, tells everyone that your soul is here, essentially. This is where Nick Weber is. I'm located here. And so what does the body of Christ, that's the church, mean? It means that we are his physical presence in this world. It means that we are his smile, that we are his voice, that we are his hand, that we are his feet, that his mission is ours now by his spirit. Now, it's uh, really actually quite um, amazing when you think about it. But up to this point in Luke's gospel, all eyes have been on Jesus, right? All eyes have been on him. Even in the beginning stages, it was all about, man, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's here, he's here, he's here. And all eyes have been on him. In fact, chances are you've probably forgotten through the course of these amazing stories that the twelve were even there. That the disciples were even by him for all these awesome things. We, 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 we may have even forgotten that these twelve were even there, but they have been there all along. And that is the most critical point um i don't know much about magic or magicians uh, i guess you can ask steve marsh about this i found out the guy is a kind of undercover magician so we'll see if we can get him to do a talent show for us or something but i don't know much about magicians all right but i do know i, I think one thing and that is this they will get you looking over here while something perhaps even more important is going on over here and in a way, it's Jesus is not doing magic here, but in a way, that's kind of the image in my mind as we've been reading through this gospel up to this point. It's like, man, all our eyes have been over here on what he's been doing with the, the crowds and the individuals. I mean, we have read some amazing things. What he, we've seen how he's embraced the leper. 
We've seen how he's healed the paralytic. We've seen how he restores the man with the withered hand. Or, or he, with just a word, heals the centurion's servant. Or he raises the widow's son. Or we watched how he treated perhaps that woman who they think was, was a prostitute. Or at least a sinner. And how he restored her and was not ashamed to be associated with her. We watched how he cast the demon out of the demoniac. However many were in there, it filled you know, thousands of pigs. We watched uh, just a few weeks ago how the woman who had that flow of blood for so long just touched him and she was healed. We watched how he raised Jairus' daughter up from the dead. But here's the thing that now comes into the foreground. We weren't the only ones watching that. The disciples were watching it too. And while Jesus is over here doing these things, he's over here, you could say, with these disciples doing something perhaps even more profound. Training them, teaching them. Raising them up so that they may look like him when it comes time for them to be sent out on Christ's mission. Is that an amazing thought? It's amazing to me. I think that this is perhaps one of the most awesome things that a sinful, fallen human being could ever conceive. That as we watch Jesus heal the sick, or we watch him eat with tax collectors, cast out demons, embrace the unclean, rebuke the self-righteous, and ultimately, as we watch him lay down his life for us, for his enemies, on the cross, we are witnessing not just how holy and set apart and altogether different and awesome Jesus is. That's true. We are witnessing that. But we are also witnessing what he is committed to make us by his spirit. You catch that? Like we are witnessing the very mission that he is going to put us on by his spirit. So that the first eight chapters of Luke, while they've been directing our attention to Jesus and rightfully so, are also training ground and teaching us what we ought to look like when he then says, now you go and we proclaim and we heal with unbelievable compassion and life-sacrificing love. Incredible. It's an incredible thought. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see that? It gives His Spirit to us so we can start to do that too. This means, therefore, that before you or I can be God's missionary, we must first be Christ's disciple, called into intimate communion with Him, watching Him, learning from Him, following behind Him, letting Him teach, letting Him shape. We need to be intimately acquainted with His kindness, with His grace, with uh, His love. So that when it comes time for us to be sent out, we look like Him. 
We look like him. Second uh, preparative, second missionary preparation piece that we see here. Um, they are given. They're given something by the Messiah, by Jesus. Uh, we read there in verse 1, Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So one commentator writes that Jesus here is essentially transferring the endowments of the Spirit that he received at his baptism to the disciples. So Jesus is taking this power and authority that up to this point, you remember, everyone's been awed at in him. What power? Who speaks with such authority? This is incredible. Takes that, and now he says, it's yours as well. Twelve. I give it to you. This guy says that was essentially the transference of what Jesus received in the spirit at his baptism. Do you remember uh, Jesus' baptism? When he goes under the water, he comes up and the spirit falls, we're told in Luke 3.22. It descends upon him. Luke 4.1, it fills him. And then, after his combat in the wilderness with the devil, we're told that he returns to uh, Jerusalem there in the power of the Spirit. So this propelling missionary spirit put upon the Son, and that's when his ministry begins, with power and authority. And here, it's he gives his disciples, he gives these apostles a, a taste of that already. He's, he's grooming them for what their mission will be in full when he leaves at the uh, beginning of Acts there. And the church is fully sent out. The idea then is that the making of a missionary involves not only being called into close communion with Jesus so that you can learn to be like him. It also requires that you be given something of his power. Here's the, here's the cold, hard fact of the matter. If you don't go out with his spirit and his power, you will spend buckets of sweat, but see none of the harvest. Did you hear that? What this moment in uh, Jesus' Jesus's interaction with the apostles means is that we need his spirit, his power, his authority, or there will be no success. And it's vanity, it's, it's a hamster in a wheel if we try running forward without Him. It's a continuation of His mission done by His Spirit with His power. With His power. Uh, one of the things, it seems to me, that, that marks our culture in particular, but the human race in general, right, is, is autonomy. This... Um, this idea of, of self-sufficiency, this idea that uh, we can do it. I mean, that was what, that was the seed of sin in our forefathers, was it not? Like, if I, I don't need God to tell me what to do. I can reach, take this, and I'll be like God myself. I can get around the whole wait on God thing, and I can make it happen. Self-realization, self-reliance, autonomy. That's how we function by nature. We like to think that we can get the job done. And we take pride in that. You know, when boss comes into the boardroom and who can do this? 
Who volunteers? I got it. You don't want to put these other fools in there. I got this. I can take care of this. And if I can't take care of it, I can, I can find the right book, find, you know, craft the right budget, find the right tool. And with that, I will be able to get it done. All right. No waiting on God here. We don't need, who's, who, Yahweh, Yeshua, who's that? But Nick Weber, that guy's a superstar, right? I don't think I'm the only one, well, maybe I am, I don't know, who uh, has um, spent inordinate amounts of time searching the Mac app store for like that one app that will suddenly take care of all my productivity woes. You guys done that? Nobody, nobody's like that. Nobody's a nerd like me. Like if I find that tool, suddenly my life will come together. And I'll be able to get things done. All my tasks will be done. All my, my, my scheduling. I finally won't be late. Sometimes I roll into church like 10 minutes before the service. What's that? I need a nap. <laughs> if I get a nap, I could fix that. Just turning to something other than God. Some sort of man-made, let's pull ourselves up here. Let's find the right tool. Get the right book. The right strategy. We can make, we can make the change. We can make it happen. It's autonomy. You bring that sort of autonomy, you bring that sort of self-reliance into the church, you, you, you transfer that into the mission of God. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster. Because what we find is that you, you just can't replace the Holy Spirit with your own willpower. There's no app that's going to help you with that. You might be able to shred off the pounds with the right app that tracks your calories or whatever it is. I could do it. You're not going to find the right app that allows you, that enables you to go into the mission field and see harvest, partake of the fruit. We cannot, human beings cannot manufacture what only God can produce. I'll say that again. Human beings cannot manufacture what only God can produce. I think that's the point of given here. And that's the point later on of Acts and wait until the Spirit comes. It's not going to go well until I'm doing this in you, until I give you the power and the authority. This is what Paul the Apostle, the chief, you know, uh, the archetypal missionary, if you will, um, gets. I mean, if anybody you think uh, could could just by the sheer force of his will convert sinners to Christ, it would be Paul. Right? I worked harder than all of them. He said, Man, sleepless nights, getting lashed, all this. This guy has willpower like you've never believed. But he says, God at work in me. And at the end of the day, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. If anything happened from my labor, it's because God gave it to me. You hear that? It was given to me. What grace. Now willpower, don't lift me up. You know where I came from. Murderer, persecutor of the church. There's no explanation for this kind of harvest other than he gave the growth in his grace. 
One text that I love on this is um, coming up later in Luke 10. Jesus looks at the 72 um, there in verse 2 of chapter 10, and he says this. It's awesome. The harvest is plentiful. So there's a lot. There's a lot to do in the field. Okay? The harvest is plentiful. And then he goes on. But the laborers are few. In other words, this is a crisis. There's a lot to do and not very many hands or people to do it. Therefore, hold on. What does he say next? Therefore, what are you doing, disciples, sitting on your hands? Get out there. Go, 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 go. Get it done. Is that what he says? He'll say that next. But there's something he says in between. What does he say immediately following this, this realization of a great harvest need? This is what he says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Did you hear that? First step isn't see the need and meet it. I got you, Jesus. I'm on your team. Let's go. Mm -mm. You go out with that sort of self-made man. I'm ready to go. Put me in coach kind of thing. And you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the power. You're going to miss the given that we so desperately need. So he says, you see the need? Oh man, it's great. Now pray. Before you go, don't, don't just go. Pray earnestly. Because there's a Lord over the harvest. And he's the one responsible for causing, for giving the growth, for giving the power and authority to do that sort of thing. So then he comes out in verse 3, and this is finally what we expect. Then he says, Go. Behold, I am sending you. It's just a little lesson I needed to teach you first. Namely, it's not up to you. God doesn't need you to get it done. Okay? If you drop down on your knees, the missionary lifestyle begins on your knees. Crying out for God's power, the gift of His grace to go forward. This is Acts 4, when they're being persecuted and they're scared. And yes, they already have the Pentecost filling of the Spirit, but they're scared and they pray, God, please help us so that we can continue going out with boldness. And it says the Spirit falls and fills them afresh in some sort of continual way, and then they go out again, proclaiming with boldness. The needs are great, but before we go, we drop to our knees and we beg. We can't do it without you. So that really is the question then. Are we waiting on God? Are are we praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest? Um, I'm going to have our home group leaders watch uh, a video today uh, with a guy by the name of Jeff Vanderstelp uh, talking about his ministry. And uh, at the end of the video, the guy talking about his city at the time it was Tacoma just starts weeping, just starts crying, just thinking about the 
people, the situation. Just you could you just get the sense that the man spends hours on his knees praying for his neighbors and the people around him, earnestly asking the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers from his church or any church to reach them. Is that in us? Is that in me? I want it to be. You know, um, final quick thought on this idea of given. Um, It is simultaneously seems to me humbling and uh, encouraging, is it not? That we can't do anything uh, at all here. That we need him desperately. Because on the one hand, uh, it's discouraging because uh, it kind of hurts our ego. Right? We don't like to hear that. Oh, like don't go until I come and do it through you, please. <laughs> that doesn't feel so good. On the other hand, it's wonderfully encouraging because what it means is, is God doesn't expect this sort of power to come from you. He doesn't expect you to be a super Christian. He doesn't expect you to be Hudson Taylor or Paul the Apostle or whoever. He's the one who makes those sorts of people. They don't make themselves that way. He expects you to wait on him and say, I can't do it. We're all broken. We all start to shake when we think about even sharing the gospel with our family member across the table at Thanksgiving. What are they going to think? We need the spirit. We all need that. He knows that. And we're already right with God because Christ walked the walk, talked the talk for us. Died in our place so that we we can grow in this thing. We can cower and be scared and he can fill us with fresh boldness to go. Third and finally, so we see that missionaries are called, they're given, and now we return to that idea that missionaries are sent. This is where we're, we're going to end here. Um, the missionary is first called into close communion with Christ, given some of his power and authority, and only then, only then can we talk about the missionary as ready to be sent. So Jesus, there in verses 1 and 2 of our text, called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out. Now, here's a little window into my own prayer life that's a bit convicting. Uh, The Spirit, uh, I feel like, just convicted me the other, well, it was a little while ago now, but um, I I was praying, as I had many, many times, praying that God would bring people to us. <laughs> Down on my knees, asking God, hey, God, please, will you bring the lost and the broken and the hurting and the, the, the elect of God to us? Let them show up at our doorstep on Sunday morning and come into our gathering. God, let them find our website. Please bring them to us. And the Holy Spirit just, I'm not, all of a sudden I'm like, what am I doing? I don't think, and this is, this is what occurred to me, I don't think you can find an example of that kind of prayer anywhere in the New Testament. Bring them to us. God, we're going to hold a service. We're going to hold a little gathering, and we want you to bring all the lost into us. That's not how they prayed. It was, it was moving in the exact opposite direction. You hear me? You hear me? Their prayers were not, bring them to us, but God, give us the power so we can go out to them. 
We don't expect the lost to come seeking us. God is calling the church to go seek them. That moved me. That's why I want to spend three weeks on this text. And I'm so excited that we're, we've now reached a hinge in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking more at what it means to be now a church sent out like this Christ that we follow. I'm not trying to say in any way here that I am unconcerned with visitors or I don't want to be sensitive in our services to those who are seeking. I absolutely do. But I'm just trying to say, man, if we look at the book of Acts, the momentum is moving in the opposite direction. The church is going out. The church is seeking and saving the lost. The only thing that they're waiting for is for the spirit to fill them so that they can go out again. (laughs) That's what they're waiting for. Is that... Does that mark us? I want it to. All of this, again, of course, is just simply following right in line with the mission of our Savior, is it not? I mean, he is, I I, I misspoke earlier saying Paul's the archetypal missionary. He's not. Jesus is. Jesus is the quintessential sent one of God, is he not? The one who seeks and saves the lost. That's what this whole thing has been about. That's why we're here. Because he has found us. Because he found us. That we were dead on the ocean floor. And his voice called us up and resuscitated, brought back to life. That's why we're here. And that's why he sends us out. That's why we go. That's why we long to go to them. To our neighbors. To the nations. The found... Find. The caught, catch. The harvested, harvest. The saved, save. Those that have been sought for are now sent out. Every saint sent. I'll read you um, a quote here. From a guy by the name of Jack Miller. So I just want you to remember that uh, this is not just for the 12. It is for us. And I've loved what I've been reading in this book. Um, This is what he says, reflecting on the Great Commission. What we are calling for is a rethinking of the Great Commission. To read it so as to see that it is defining the church in most radical terms. The missionary mandate, or Great Commission, is not simply an imperative requiring the church to send missionaries into the harvest field. It certainly is that. But the entire church, you, me, the entire church, is a sent church. A commissioned body that is itself involved in the harvesting task it's not just send out a few but you me all of us send i'll close with um the words of spurgeon uh one more time here only now in fuller context let his words search you uh bring you to repentance faith joy uh and a lifestyle of mission he who really has a high estimate of jesus will think much of him. And as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk 
much of him. Do we so? If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you know Christ, you are as one that has found honey. You will call others to taste of it. You are like the lepers who found the food which the Syrians had cast away. You will go to Samaria and tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus and are anxious that they should find him too. Be wise in your generation and speak of him in fitting ways and at fitting times. And so in every place, proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. Let's pray. God, thank you. I mean, what grace it is. We often think that that talking about evangelism or mission is some sort of a legalistic guilt trip and it dredges up resentment and feelings of, of condemnation. But God, your perspective on it is so different. What a privilege. Who in the world are we that we get to be a part of your mission? Gosh, you could have done it so much more effectively, it seems, with others. <laughs> or just if you had handled it by yourself. And yet here we are, your church, filled with your spirit, commissioned by you, sent every one of us to the lost of this world. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that privilege. God, empower us, enable us to do it. To your honor. It's in your name we pray. Amen.